You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. It's always been good to begin with maybe a question to get us thinking, and that is what has consumed your time, energy, and thoughts this past week? Perhaps maybe what you've spent a lot of time thinking about is health issues. Maybe that's been something on the forefront of your previous week. Or maybe it has to do with dynamics in the workplace and work responsibilities and tensions there. Or perhaps it's circumstances, either in your own life or maybe in the life of a family member or a loved one that has tended to consume your time, energy, and thoughts. But what if there was something I could give you that would say in the midst of life when those things happen, you need to think more deeply and more seriously about this. That here's something all of us should think about more and more. And if we did that, might we be able to look back on our previous week and have lived it much differently? Can we look ahead and say we will live this week much differently? Because we will think deeply about the following. And so I want to direct your attention to 1 Peter this morning. And just a quick reminder, uh, as you look in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get a glimpse of Peter as the disciple, the follower of Christ. If you look at the book of Acts, you get a glimpse of Peter as a powerful preacher. But it's when you turn to his epistles, First and Second Peter, you get a look at Peter the pastor. Written some 30 to 35 years after Christ's death and resurrection, we now see Peter as a pastor, as a shepherd of a flock. And so in 1 Peter, he turns to a group of believers, as you will see, scattered about, persecuted, overwhelmed at times with what's absorbing their attention and energy. And he says to them, I want you to think long and deep about the glories of what it means to say that you are saved. So I want to direct your attention to that this morning. And so look at me at verses 1 and 2. As Peter begins this letter, we are immediately told the typical things in any salutation. Who is the author and who's the audience? And so you notice in verses 1 and 2, he says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Paul's audience is living in a day and an age where Christianity has been marginalized, where Christians are increasingly being persecuted and silenced, where they are trying to figure out how do you live out your faith in Christ in a pluralistic world. If any of that sounds highly relevant, then you know what our world today is also like. And so Peter says, what I want you to think about in the midst of all that going on is first of all, the grounds of your salvation. 
to stop and remind yourself, what are the grounds of your salvation and standing in Christ? And I love how Peter begins in verse 1 and says, to God's elect. And quite a contrast, God's elect who in this world, as he'll unfold throughout this epistle, are strangers and foreigners uh, that we don't really fit in in this world. And I think one indication that you are growing as a Christian is that you will find yourself more and more uncomfortable in this world. Uh, that you look at the values that are being promoted, as you look at the moral and ethical standards that are being adopted by so many, as you look at the worldview so many are adopting around us, that you look at that and you say, wait a minute, that, that's not right. It doesn't line up with God's word. And Peter begins with a subject that often, sadly, for many Christians, seems to be a divisive issue. He says, if you, you want to talk of the grounds of your salvation, let's go right to divine election. In other words, that God in his infinite grace and mercy chose to save you. He chose to draw you to himself, to work in your heart that you would respond in faith to the offer of salvation in Christ alone. As I said, sadly, we seem to want to often not bring that subject up. We know that Christians can be a little different on what election refers to. Peter runs right to that. So let's talk about this. What a privilege. What a joy it should be to think that God simply chose you and me. There's something about that that should leave us in great humility as well as joy. And what a contrast. We are elected, we are chosen by God, but how does our world see us? Uh, strangers? Misfits? An inconvenience? An irritation? But yet God sees us as his chosen and elect. And you notice in verse 2, he goes on to speak about the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I think this touches on, when you think of divine election, to foreknow means to determine beforehand. Well, what was God's determining beforehand based on? And as you look throughout Scripture, as you compare this to Paul's argument in other places in the Bible, that God's foreknowledge was based on his sovereign counsel. In other words, not foreseeing faith, not looking ahead at the potential that you might be, because I think if all of us are very honest, if God knows everything, and you look at your life and I look at my life, is there anything in it that as we look at it would have merited God saying, yes, you are going to be the, the poster person for holiness. I look at your life and I see everything is just perfect. That you're so faithful, so diligent. But in fact, we see throughout the pages of Scripture, it's the opposite. He chose Abraham. When Abraham lived in an ungodly, pagan country and surroundings. He chose Jacob. He chose Isaac. And you look at the history of these individuals, and they, they had some big mess-ups in their life. I think of anything that we say, if God knows everything, clearly he did not choose me 
because of what he could see in my life. He chose me by his grace. What a reminder for us to step back from our circumstances, from the realities of life, and to simply look at the grounds of our salvation. And rather than seeing election as a controversial issue, why don't we see it as the most comforting and motivating doctrine in Scripture? It's comforting because if God chose me based on his own sovereign will, then I have not earned my salvation, nor then can I lose my salvation. Because the reality is, if you've earned your salvation, then there is always a possibility you could lose it. There's something you could do that may be so bad, so disturbing, that God says, deals off. But if it's fully by grace, what a blessing, what a security. And even as Peter would write to these people who in many ways are literally homeless, marginalized by society, he says to them, don't forget your identity is in being God's elect. Not that you're esteemed by the world. Not that you have the most followers on Twitter. But that you know that I love you. It should motivate us. Not lead us to complacency. But what a motivation and debt of love we recognize there. On our part towards God. The grounds of our salvation should move us to look at our circumstances, to look at ourselves very differently. But in speaking of the grounds of our salvation, the importance of the doctrine of election, Peter also reminds us that salvation is by grace and is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are reminded that one of the non-negotiables of our faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you know anything about other religions, you quickly realize the doctrine of the Trinity sets Christianity apart from any other faith and teaching. And you see, as Peter references this in verses 1, 2, and 3, he speaks of God the Father. And it's because of the great mercy of God the Father that salvation has been presented but doesn't just leave it that, well, it's the work of the Father. But then he also includes in the second and third verse, mentioning of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. A reference, as we'll pick up later, to Christ's death and resurrection. So we have the work of the Father in the plan of salvation. We have certainly the ministry and work of the Son in dying for our sins and rising again. But then he does not leave out as well the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see this in verse 2. He says, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So as we were singing, Jesus saves, you could sing that in three different tenses. You could sing it in the past, Jesus saved us. You could sing it in the present, Jesus is presently saving us through the work of the Holy Spirit who is conforming us more and more into his image. And yet that process of salvation 
is not completed until, as Peter keeps adding, till the time in which Jesus Christ is fully revealed, his return. So the grounds of our salvation remind us our salvation is a past, present, as well as future event. You notice in verse 11 that the intricacy of God's plan, when he says in verse 11, referring to the prophets in the past, he speaks about the spirit of Christ that was in them. In other words, when you think of the work of the the Trinity in our salvation, there's no confusion here to say the work of God is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that these prophets of old, like Isaiah, who spoke about the Messiah to come, one who would be anointed, he was saying this, and Christ had not physically, literally come yet in the incarnation. But he was speaking in the spirit of Christ, in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Suddenly we see a new dimension when we start to think about what does it mean to just reflect on the grounds of our salvation. But Peter next moves to not just the grounds of our salvation, but the glory of our salvation. Why should it excite us to say that I am a Christian? We're stop to think about that. Why, why should that be an exciting sort of statement to make? Why should when you say that people see a sense of joy? and enthusiasm on our faces. Not that we're admitting this disgruntedly. We're not admitting it apologetically, like I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm a Christian. I was talking to a Dartmouth student the other day, not one that typically comes. I met him on the sidewalk, and uh, he, he said, what were you guys doing in there? Uh, so I told him what we do, uh, and he wanted to know, well, he's, he's into all different religions, so so... Could he come to the group? Is it like an interfaith kind of group? And I said, well, you need to know. Anyone's welcome. And you can bring your questions. But we're presenting this from the perspective of Christianity, from what the Bible teaches. Because we should not be ashamed to say that we believe Christ is who he said he is, that we are followers of Christ, that is the most joyful proclamation we can say, to say that I am Christian. I am a follower of Christ. Imagine Peter's audience, where maybe you could kind of guess the thrill of that has been tested when you've lost your possessions, when your maybe economic future looks bleak because word has gotten out that you are a follower of Christ that you've taken a stand on certain issues. So you see in verse 4, Peter deliberately draws attention to our inheritance. If you want to think about the glory of what is yours in Christ, stop and consider, what's your inheritance? What, what, What does this secure for us? And you notice three strong adjectives to describe our inheritance in verse 4. One, it can never perish. Uh, it is without any form of decay. I think in general, in life, law of thermodynamics tells us that everything decays. 
Your garden, if left to itself, will not weed itself. It will become overrun. It will deteriorate. It will decay. But our inheritance cannot decay. Impossible. But then notice he adds a second adjective. Um, It cannot spoil. Remember, these are the days before refrigeration. Before you had refrigerators that, like now, will remind you of everything and connect with your iPhone and show you your calendar. Uh, It does not spoil. It, It cannot become tainted. It is pure. If it's pure, it means it's beyond improvement. And then finally, it's not just it will never perish, it will never spoil, it will never fade. Its value and character remains intact. And I think all you have to do is is look around us. If you've been a part of this church for a number of years, uh, you may notice a a lot of you are getting older. Uh, You know, the, the wear and tear of the years begins to show. And that's a part of life. But not so with your inheritance. Its character is unchanging. Once again, I don't know about you, but isn't there great value and enjoyment and peace in knowing your inheritance is secure? When you look at your life and see things are constantly changing, circumstances come and go in our lives. But this is a reality. And this concept that Peter is teaching straight from the Word of God is completely foreign to the concept of Greeks in his day. Greeks had a very depressing picture of the afterlife. It's a presentation of despair. It would match the modern-day equivalent of existentialists today or strict materialists. Guys like William Provine, a professor uh, at one time at Harvard, a uh, biophysicist who said when his life dies, when he dies, game over. That's it. He just goes into the ground and end of story. But what a depressing picture. Is, is that all life is? And yet we quickly recognize the reality is, although people can make statements like that, no one wants to be forgotten. A few months back, you had Stephen Hawking, who passed away. Very strong atheist. But what did you notice happened? Big memorial service in his honor in New York City. Thousands came. My question is, why? If Hawking was right, there is no God. Everything is material. He's died. He's over. Who cares? But what does it tell you about the human soul and the need? We want to be remembered. We may say we think life is over, but we still say there's got to be more. And Scripture answers that cry. Peter responds to a very despairing look at life in the afterlife and says, as Christians, take glory in the inheritance that is yours and will be yours. But our Christianity has present comfort and results as well. And Peter does not want to exclude that. He's not saying here, you know, the joy of the Christian life is live 75 or 80 years, endure it, and then bam, 
you get your reward later. He says, no, no. Yeah, the, the reward at the end is, is beyond what we can even think or imagine. But don't lose sight of the present comforts and security. And so you notice in verse 2 at the end where he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is not some phrase that Peter was just kind of throwing out there. A false means of pacifying these struggling believers. But he was saying it because he meant it. He was saying this is what we have in Christ right now. We can have grace and peace in abundance. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your health, no matter where you are working or what your colleagues are like. Verse 5, he speaks to the fact that we are presently shielded by the power of God. We had referenced this morning as we thought of God's calling to make disciples. And in that calling, he says, I will never what? Leave you or forsake you. I will watch over you. I will protect you. I will empower you. Imagine to a marginalized audience being reminded, you're, you're being shielded and watched over by God. And even if, for some of you, your life will end in martyrdom, it's not because God has not failed to shield and protect you. But in that shielding and protection, he has pulled you quickly to his home. And so what a comfort for us to think about our present salvation as God watches over his children. He protects, he guides, he cares for his children. Verses 6 and 7, Paul, or excuse me, Peter here is not an idealist. He's not living in some rose-colored world. But notice in verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, Though what? Right now, it's hard. Right now, you are suffering. He's not ignoring the reality of life, the sinful impact that the consequences of sin have on all of us, even as Christians. But he's saying, put all of this in perspective. You do have extreme joy, even in the midst of present suffering and difficulties if you focus your thoughts on what is yours in Christ Jesus. Because we all know in the midst of life, it is so easy to think more deeply about what's going on around us than the promises of God. We all need to be reminded of this. Peter is not preaching something novel here. It's not as if well, they read this letter and they'll say, wow, this is amazing. Peter, you were a genius. We've never heard this before. Peter says, I, I need to remind you. And I think when Peter and Paul and others speak of remind the believers of this, that God is also saying, Paul, you need to remind yourself of this. Peter, you need to remind yourself of this as you remind your people of this. Verse 8 compounds the description of our present comfort and joy. In verse 8, 
It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, either Peter's lying or there's somewhere a disconnect if you're saying, I don't, I don't, I don't sense that in my life. Now, you either don't sense it because maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the reality is, Peter is saying, this, this is a part of our salvation. It, it, it's a package deal. Not just the future, but the present reality of Christ in our life. And then Peter goes panoramic on us in verses 10 through 12. And he gives us a perspective on God's plan of salvation by reminding us of the prophets in the past. And says, what you have now is what all those prophets lived for. It is is what they taught the people. It is what they anticipated but was not a reality in their life. Fast forward centuries from this letter, we stand at an even greater vantage point. The whole New Testament, the whole canon of Scripture completed in our hands. But not only is this amazing to think this great plan of salvation was what was behind the words of the prophets and how they lived. But then at verse 12, you have mentioned these things even the angels in heaven long to look into. In other words, they they desire to see the completion of God's plan of salvation. Now, if that doesn't remind you of the glory of your salvation and mine in Christ, I don't know what else you could say. That even angels who are of greater present strength in us, intelligence in us, say, we we can't wait to see the fulfillment of this. Which brings us to the third point that Peter makes. He's not just saying, think about the grounds of your salvation. Think about the glory of it. But then finally, the goal of your salvation. What is the goal of this? Is it merely to make you feel better, give you a sense of hope and purpose and a bleak life? Or is there something much deeper and greater? And you see the purpose comes out in a number of places. Verses 3 through 12 is is one sentence in the original language. It it is in every way a doxology, a song of praise. But but what is the praise about? Well, you notice in verse 2, it mentions there that we are to walk in obedience to Christ. Let's not forget just not what we were saved from, but what we are saved to. We are saved to be followers of Christ. And when we only present it that, well, you're saved so your sins are forgiven, so you can have new life, that is a very self-centered perspective on salvation. Which may tell us why we have so many people who say they're Christians, who may think they're Christians, but they're really not followers of Christ. Because all they're thinking is salvation is about what I get. Peter says, no, no, you, you were saved for obedience 
to Jesus Christ. It implies a transformation. But then you notice in verse 3, he begins and says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the purpose of salvation ultimately is the praise and worship and honor of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That we would praise him, that we would literally speak well of who God is. So salvation is not all about us. There are a lot of people today talk about our story. Make sure you tell your story. Well, there is a place for us to speak about our testimony, but salvation is not people hearing our story. It's hearing God's story. What has God done for us in Christ Jesus? And so Peter reminds them, remember you were saved to worship and to honor the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Verse 7 has an interesting statement in it. Towards the end, it mentions you're being tested by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I don't think I thought of it this way before, but could it be possible part of the praise here is that when we live out our faith and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, by the approval of our dependence on God, there is the praise of our testimony that then even continues to glorify God. In other words, Peter is reminding them, it is about you in terms of how you are living out your faith. Because in one sense, you could look at this letter and say, well, what's probably going to happen to a bunch of these people Peter's writing to? Many of them may die. Many of them may have no significant impact on the world scene for Christianity. So why should they be faithful? Why should they be diligent? Because by living out their faith in their own circle of life, in the place where God has put them, they will honor God by being recognized and approved as good and diligent servants. You notice at the end of verse 9, he says, the goal of your salvation is the salvation of your souls. And we are reminded here that God's plan of salvation is not just to save you spiritually, but it includes the final ultimate package, a new and glorified body. That his plan of salvation is body, soul, and spirit, us entirety. Which is why Jesus was not just raised from the dead spiritually, it was a bodily resurrection. As the forerunner, that's what we're anticipating, that, that our bodies will be raised up, that we'll be given a new glorified body like his. No wonder this is why Paul, when he's ending his letter in 1 Thessalonians, says that God will keep you blameless spirit, soul, and body. He's saying don't leave off the importance of the rest of what the plan of salvation includes. There's an interesting article in the Boston Globe this week about a three-year-old girl from Mississippi 
who came to Boston Children's Hospital to have a cranio, um, a cranio surgery. In other words, to, to reform, reshape her face, her eyes, everything because of a birth deformity. Following the successful surgery, her mother said, this surgery has changed the life of my daughter forever. Now, as touching as that comment might be, what intrigued me was more the rest of the article. Because it's very clear in reading the article, the parents speak of their faith. And they speak clearly, although they don't actually say it in words, you can't read it, but say, these people have to be Christians. In other words, it means something. When someone refers to a surgery as life-changing, who has themselves experienced the greatest event and life-changing event, and that is salvation. Why could they, in the midst of this situation, look at it much differently than our world? Because I believe they were looking at it in the same way Peter was looking when he wrote this letter. Think about the depths of your salvation in Christ. And when you do that, it will change how you view everything else going on in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we need, just like Peter, just like these believers scattered in a very large area, need to be reminded to think about the grounds of our salvation, the glory of our salvation, and the goal of our salvation. Thank you for giving us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to be a visible means to drive that home to us over and over again until our Savior returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.